Let us pray. Thank you, gracious one, for your spirit that is here in this place and for your willingness to open our hearts that we might understand more of your truth. May we leave this place, having been transformed by that truth, more into the image of the Christ we serve and in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I first want to just simply express my thanks and gratitude to you for your prayers on behalf of my wife, Cindy, over this past week, uh, and especially to Father Charles and Allison for uh, picking up last week when I was unexpectedly uh, detained there with her. We went in on Monday, August the 23rd, for what we thought was going to be an outpatient procedure that I would have her home that afternoon. Eight days and seven nights later, we were home, but she is doing much better and uh, continuing to recover day by day. So thank you so much for your prayers. The readings for this morning cause me some discomfort, and I guess that's what the readings are supposed to do. They're supposed to stir us, to trouble us at some level. But it's not the, the spirit of the reading so much as it is the language of the readings. And these choices, the, the decision that is placed before the people of Israel in the Old Testament and, and Jesus before the crowds in the gospel reading, some very difficult sayings or some sayings that are or at the opposite ends of the spectrum. One is one of those kind of duh sayings, like, yeah, really, like we're, you're, you're asking me to choose between life and death as if that's a choice. And the other, at the, at the other end of the spectrum, that leaves you scratching your head thinking, Jesus, what was it that you just said? I was with a member of our parish earlier in the week, and uh, I don't know how the conversation came around to it, but we got to Yogi Berra. You, remember, you know Yogi Berra, right? Some of the sayings that are attributed to him that he's very famous for. You know, if you come to a fork in the road, take it. Yeah, right? Uh, it ain't over till it's over. Uh, deja vu all over again, right? There are these things you think, duh, you know. At some level, they're very profound. At other levels, they're, you know, what is he saying? Well, here's what we have with the the Old Testament reading from Deuteronomy. We have Moses saying on behalf of God to the people of Israel, I've set before you today life and prosperity, death and adversity. Life and blessing, death and curses. You choose. Who among us would choose death over life or curses over blessing? It's one of those, duh, you know, Moses, what are you thinking? But apparently, the people of Israel were at a place where that was a, that was a question Moses needed to pose to them because they were obviously heading down a path that they may not have realized was leading to death and destruction and the curses of God rather than the blessing of God, and it was a wake-up call. Now, here's the one that gives me the most heartburn, however. And it's what Jesus has to say in the gospel, the opening lines. And I want particularly to look at this line in contrast with some other statements that Jesus is supposed to have made in the gospels, is recorded to have made in the gospels. He says, 
Whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even life itself, cannot be my disciple. Anyone have trouble with that? This is one of those hard sayings of Jesus. And as if that's not enough, he ends, the reading for this morning ends with, so therefore none of you can become my disciple if you do not give up all your possessions. Hate your family, give up all your possessions. And then there's that passage in the fifth chapter of Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says you're supposed to love your enemies and pray for those who despitefully use you. Hate your family, love your enemies, lose all your possessions. That's going to create a movement, right? What is it that Jesus is trying to say? There has to be something more. I've had occasion a couple of times to speak with uh, organizations that are uh, are family oriented. You know, the the it's important that they 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 stress the importance of family. And uh, occasionally, I'll ask these groups that are so. troubled by what they see happening in our culture today and, and around the, the disintegration of the, the traditional nuclear family. And I'll ask them to, to share with me what was it that Jesus had to say about family. Is there anything that Jesus said about family that we find recorded in the Gospels? And usually there are blank stares because no one can think of anything except lines like what we just read. Can you think of any other occasions where Jesus addressed family? Okay. That's good. A man says to Jesus, I'm going to follow you anywhere. And Jesus says, come and follow me. And he says, well, first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus says, let the dead bury the dead. Come and follow me. Not too family sensitive is it <laughs> think of anything else Larry yes that's exactly where I'm headed Jesus is approached at one point he says uh, the disciples come to him and says your mother and your brothers are here and he says, well, who, are my, who is my mother and who are my brothers? My brothers and sisters are those who, who do the will of the Father. What Jesus is doing is not tearing down the family so much as he is expanding the understanding of family. This was a very patriarchal society in Jesus' day. Everything centered around family and inheritance. There was so much that was wrapped up in family. And those who had no family structure were ostracized from the community. Jesus was trying to redefine family. Not destroy family, but redefine it. There's another place we read recently where Jesus said, I've come to set father against son and mother against daughter and mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and brother against sister. He's come to create chaos. What was the chaos? He wanted to redefine 
the family structure. He wanted to look at the heart of what it means to be a a follower after God, to be a part of the human family. How many times have we seen it in the church? The church is a a family made up of families. We We look at the church as a family. How many times have you seen it over the years? A family within the family is struggling. There's chaos for one reason or another. It may be divorce. It may be the loss of of employment. It may be death. It may be some kind of sickness or illness. But the family is left in shambles. And the broader family, the parish family, steps in and helps to uh, uphold that family, shore up the foundations of that household and provide whatever is, is needed to help that family heal and restore or to pick up the pieces of that shattered family and help to nurture something new back to health. You've seen it. You have likely experienced it, many of you. I know I've experienced it. My family, and most of you know a lot of my story, my family was left in shambles a number of years ago, and I thought the world was ending, and God sent me here. And then I knew it was ending. God sent me here, and you became my family and helped to nurture me back to health through a lot of struggles along the way, but you have been instrumental. You've been used by God to help me. My children were left in Northern California in the hands of a parish family that loved them and kept them in the faith and provided for them and loved them to a place of health today. I couldn't have done that for them, nor could they have done for me what you have done for me. But we are healthy today because the family and the family of God is more than just the lineage, the bloodline, the the blood family. We are more than that. And that's really what Christ was calling the church to become. That's really what Christ was calling the disciples, those who were following after him, to look beyond your cultural understanding of family and see that in the family of God there is more. And we truly do need each other. I love this reading from Philemon. Paul is encouraging this relationship that had been shattered. There's a sense of betrayal in this letter as well. But Paul has become an adopted father to who is his own son, he says, who has become spiritually his own son, Onesimus. I'm sending him back to you, who is my very heart. Paul needed someone. Onesimus was there for Paul. Onesimus needed someone. Paul was there for Onesimus. 
as a father figure. And now Paul is instrumental in restoring the relationship between Onesimus and Philemon. The community, the broader community at work, is more powerful than any single family unit within that community, and we need each other. I had occasion before this last eight-day and seven-night ordeal with my wife. We had another eight-day and seven-night experience that was a cruise to Alaska. I would choose that one over the last one any day. While we were in Alaska, the beauty of God's creation, it's, it's, it, I've never seen anything quite like it. God's creativity on full display. Amazing. In Alaska, Cindy has a nephew who she had not seen in a number of years. So as we were in Anchorage preparing to fly back to Southern California, she had made contact with him ahead of time And he met us at the airport, took us to his home where we were introduced to his family. Beautiful, lovely family. They have five children. The second to the youngest child, Hannah, before she was born, the doctors diagnosed that she had a heart defect. And it likely would mean that she would not live through childbirth. So I think there was the attempt on the part of the doctors at that point to get them to question, should you carry this pregnancy to full term or not? Well, they decided to carry the pregnancy to full term. And the four years and ten months of Hannah's life uh, included multiple surgeries. But this family and the community around this family committed themselves to ensuring that whatever there was of this child's life, they were going to be fulfilling love uh, invested days. And we saw pictures. They had a little video presentation that they'd put together a collage of of pictures of Hannah and, and videos of her. And all of them have her laughing and playing and just enjoying life, and people around her who were engaged with her enjoying life through her. There was even a point where she could not communicate anymore, and they had worked out with the the family had worked out that there were signals that if she winked and gave the thumbs up, that was the I love you sign. And there's a picture of Hannah in this montage with a wink and a thumbs up to say I love you. She died just a few weeks short of her fifth birthday. And when she died, her organs were donated, and there are two people in Alaska today who are alive because of Hannah's sacrifice. But I was impressed that an entire community of people came together to ensure that every day of this young life, no matter how short-lived it would be, would be meaningful, fulfilling days. And I think what they didn't expect was how their life was enriched in return. 
and how that that smile and that wink and the thumbs up are going to be with not just that family, but the community around them for years and years to come. The investing in the life of another resulted in the, the uh, increase of the quality of life on those who were investing in her. Does that make sense? And I left there thinking, why is it that it takes the knowledge that there are only a certain number of days or years left in life for us to invest with that kind of love and grace in someone else? What if we were to look at each of our relationships? Honestly, we don't know how long any of us have on this earth, right? There are no no guarantees. We could take a snapshot of this crowd this morning, and next week there could be someone who is here today who is not present here on this earth any longer. Life is very fragile. But what if we were to invest in each other with that same zeal to say, I'm going to invest in you and your life to such a degree that I want your life to be better and more fulfilling because I've been a part of it. What if we did that with every relationship that we, that we claim? If we were to invest ourselves in the lives of others and those who know us were to invest themselves in us, how would the world be a different place? I think that's what Jesus is getting at with not blowing up the family, but expanding the family to include all of humanity. As you've done to the least of these, Jesus said in Matthew 25, you've done it unto me. May we see life as a precious, precious gift and invest in each other's lives in such a way that those lives are enriched and in turn, our lives will also be enriched. May we live so this day and all the days of our life in Jesus' name.